Taking a look at the second thing we need to know if our houses are going to be built strong and stay strong. This message is the second in the series, Miracles in Your House. The message is entitled, Making Your Home His Home. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Our foundational verse for this series together is Psalm chapter 127, verse number one. And the scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house. Here we are reminded in this verse, as well as many other verses in scripture, of the importance of God building and God keeping our house. It's important to understand the word house. What does it mean? What is the implication for us? Most often we think of the word house as a physical structure that we live in, but the Bible is much more comprehensive when it gives us that term. The biblical term for house, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, represents at least four things. First of all, it represents your life. You are a house. The Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you yourself, your life is a house. You house the presence of God or potentially can house the presence of God. Your house is your home or your family. It represents the most intimate relationships of your life. Your house is the work that you do. You go to a house of labor, a house of work. It is your profession. It is your occupation. It is what you engage your activity in, the work of your hands. And your house also is the work that you do for God, your service to God in the house of God. So house is beyond just a physical structure. It involves all of these dimensions of life. Last weekend, we talked about the importance of establishing a legacy with your house. I described the difference between a heritage and a legacy. A heritage is what you've been handed from your past. From generations past, you were handed a heritage, but now you will make a legacy. Your legacy is what you're preparing for your future. And so the building of your house will outlast you, and God wants to help you build a house that goes beyond you to generations to come that will represent a blessing, not a curse. We talked last weekend about breaking those generational curses and living a life that moves us into the blessing, being the turnaround generation, establishing a legacy for our future. Today, I'm going to talk to us about the importance of making our house or our home God's home. There are two things I want to talk about for the next couple of moments. The first one is a bit introductory to the second major point that we'll look at together. Number one, you must understand that the Lord wants to build your house. The Lord wants to build your house, your house. The Bible makes it clear that some people build houses with God and some people build houses without God. Every person today in this room across our campuses, you're building a house and you're either building it in these four dimensions as I've described, with God or without God or partially with God or partially without God. There's some dimension of either connecting with God or failing to do so that is having an impact upon your house, your own life, your family, the work that you do with your hands, the labor that God has given you to do, and the work of His kingdom. So all of these areas are being impacted by who you're partnering with. Are you partnering with God? Jesus made it very clear that we can build with God or build without God when it comes to our houses. Notice his words in Matthew chapter 7 as a part of the great sermon on the mount where Jesus made this statement, verses 24 through 27, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
So he's talking about building of a house. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus taught us that how we build, whether with God or without God, will have consequences in our life. And you can look at two houses and from the outside not know what the foundation is. You can look at them externally and they can look exactly alike until the trouble and challenges come the way of that house, until the storms beat upon that house, and then it is at that point that there will be the reality of whether the house is built by God or the house is built on a a foundation that is sinking sand. So the question becomes, how are you building your house? Are you building your house with God? Are you trying to build your house without God? Are you partially trying to invite God into the building process? Are you wholeheartedly allowing God to be a part of building your house with you? See, God wants to be the invisible yet very real force that is at work in your house building and blessing it. That's God's desire. God wants to build your house. The second thing I want to share with you today, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning, is that for God to build our house, you and I need to practice the attitudes and the actions that actually invite God's presence into our house. Attitudes and actions that invite God's presence, is a key word there, presence into our house. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guard stands watch in vain. So you see again that God... God's desire is to be involved in this building and keeping process. But there are things that we do that will allow God to work with us in the building process. I'm going to share with you some words before we get to the main points that I want you to write down. These are not on your notes, but this will help you to have a sort of a preamble of what I'm going to share with you in just a moment. For God to be present in your house. How many of you want your house to be a place for God? Do you want your house to be God's house, right? Okay. For God to be present in your house, there are three things that have to be in, in place attitudinally in your life. You have to want God in your house. You have to welcome God in your house. And you have to worship God in your house. If you, if you want to experience the presence of God in your house, you've got to want Him. He's got to know that He's wanted there. And you express that to Him, that God, I want you to be a part of my house. And then you have to do things that welcome Him there. I'm going to talk about those in a moment. And then there must be an atmosphere of worship that is present. Because when God is present in your house, amazing things happen. Do you know that the presence of God in your house brings blessing? The presence of God in your house makes all the difference in the world. Whether it's your own individual life or your family. Or it's the work that you do or the service that you render to God. Having God present in your house is what opens you for the blessing of God upon your house. Presence equals blessing. Say that with me. Presence equals blessing. I'm going to take you back to an Old Testament story in 2 Samuel in just a moment. But let me give you the background of this story and the verse that we'll read in just a bit. At the beginning of the time of the nation of Israel, when they became a monarchy, they had their first king. God appointed a king by the name of Saul, and Saul reigned for 40 years, and Saul did some good things, but toward the latter years of his life, he really missed the mark with God, and some bad things happened in Saul's life. 
And part of what was the, what, one of the characteristics of Saul's life is he never really had a hunger for the presence of God. And because of that, he never made the Ark of God's Covenant central to Israel's worship during the time he was king. Now, the Ark of the Presence of God goes back to the time of Moses, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol or the representation or the presence of God in Israel. And so it was a part of the tabernacle of Moses. And every time they would set up a point of worship, Israel would, they would always put the Ark there. And there at the Ark was the Holy of Holies. And they would come into the presence of God with worship. And so it represented God's house or God's presence. And so Saul, during the time he was king of Israel, never once thought about the Ark, never inquired about the Ark of God, never did anything to establish a central dimension of worship for Israel. He never gave any consideration to the presence of God. He just went about his stuff as king. Of course, when Saul finally died and David now comes on the scene as the second king of Israel, King David, one of the first things that David did is he starts asking about the ark. Where's the ark at? I've got to find the ark. We've got to get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. We've got to have the ark in Jerusalem. And he established something that we often refer to as the tabernacle of David actually in Jerusalem. That's a whole other teaching in and of itself. But when David first inquired about the ark, and the ark of God represents the presence of God. Say that with me. The ark of God represents the presence of God. So you've got to get that equation there. So when David starts asking, where's the ark? Where's the ark? You've got to get the ark. Bring it to Jerusalem. He finds out where the ark is, and he sends some guys to go get it. But he doesn't take the time to actually determine the right way to move the ark. Because the ark represented the holiness of God, the presence of God. And so he sent some guys with a cart and some oxen, and they put the ark on an ox cart. And the oxen started carrying the ark toward Jerusalem. And the, the oxen stumbled, and the cart started to slip off. And a couple of the guys reach over and try to steady it, and they touched the presence of God, and they died. And David thought, my goodness, what is that all about? These guys are dead now, and I must not be doing this thing the right way. He had the right heart. He wanted the right thing, but he wasn't doing it the right way, okay? There's a big difference there. It's a sermon in and of itself, right? He wanted the right thing, but he wasn't going about it the right way. And so he's confused. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And so while he's trying to figure this out, he says, we're going to just let the ark rest right here, until I can figure out how to get this thing to Jerusalem the right way, because he had to go back and study the scriptures and figure out how to get the ark there. And so he left it at the house of a man by the name of Obed-Edom. And so now Obed-Edom has the ark of God's covenant in his backyard. Can you imagine that? I mean, you got the, the Holy of Holies in your backyard. How many of you like to go home today and have the Holy of Holies in your backyard? Wouldn't that be awesome? Okay, right? So... So he's got the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, in his yard, okay? And I want you now to go with me to 2 Samuel. Let's take a look, if you will, at chapter 6, verse number 11. I want you to notice what happens in this situation because of the Ark, the presence of God. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for how long? For three months. And read the rest with me. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Obed-Edom said, man, this ark thing is really good because it's sitting in my yard and ever since it arrived in my house, my house is a different place. My garden is growing like it's never grown before. My livestock are reproducing like they've never reproduced before. My kids are doing better in school than they've ever done before. My wife is nicer to me than she's ever been before, okay? 
So Obed-Edom is looking at this situation and the only thing that's changed for those three months. What has changed? What is different on those three months? One thing is different. What is present in the yard of Obed-Edom? The presence of Almighty God. Let me tell you something, dear ones. The presence of God brings blessing with it. That's why you and I need to pursue the presence of God. That's why we want his, our house to be His house. We want the ark of His presence to be in our homes. It's valuable to us. It brings blessing to our lives. So how do we actually do this? What steps do we take that will allow us to welcome the presence of God into our house? Let me give you six things. I'm going to ask you to read them together with me across our campuses. Let's read it. Number one, you need to show, read with me, show God that you need Him, you depend on Him, and that you trust Him. Circle the word show. I didn't say tell God. The word there is show God. Show God that you need Him, that you depend upon Him, and that you trust Him. You know, it's so easy to say, God, hey God, I love you. But it's a different thing when you actually live the life that demonstrates that you actually are showing God that you need Him, that you depend on Him, and that you trust Him. The way that you do that is you make God a priority in your life. And the way you make God a priority in your life is it is reflected in the way you spend your time and the way you spend your treasure, that is your, res- your financial resources, and the way you spend your talents, your capacities, your energies, okay? Whatever energy that God has given you in life, that's an investment. So where you primarily invest your time, your treasure, and your talents will reflect your priorities. You can know what's important to a person by looking at their schedule, by looking at their checkbook, or their bank account, and by looking at where they invest their energy. Those three things will tell you what's most important in a person's life. So God says, if you want me to bless your house, I've got to be number one in your house. You need to show me by the investment of your time and your treasure and your talents that I am number one, that you are dependent upon me. James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. You might circle that word. Proud means lots of different things, arrogance and a variety of things we could talk about. But one of the things that pride also represents is an independence from God, okay? That I can live life on my own. God opposes the people who are independent of Him, but shows favor or shows grace to the humble, those who are dependent upon Him. Psalm 115, verses 9 through 11. O house of Israel, notice house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear Him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. So show God that you need Him that you depend on Him, that you trust Him. Number two, read together with me. Create an atmosphere. Come on, folks, here we go. Create an atmosphere, an attitude of gratitude and praise. Where? In your house. In your house. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 3. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. I want to explain that verse to you. The Bible says that God is enthroned on the praises of Israel, enthroned on praises. The word throne, when you think about a throne, you generally associate a king with a throne, right? King or queen with a throne. And when a king or queen sits on a throne, they are in a position then to exercise authority. That's what it is. They give decrees from their throne. They make laws from their throne. They make declarations from their throne. They exercise authority from their throne, okay? And the Bible says that God is enthroned on the praises of people, on the praises of Israel, on our praises. That is, it means this. It means that when you and I praise God, 
genuinely, genuinely worship Him and genuinely praise Him, we establish the condition where God can come and rule in a situation, rule in our lives. That His authority can be established, that He can do things that otherwise would not be done because He is on a throne to exercise authority. But the way that we create that atmosphere for God to come and rule is by an attitude of gratitude and praise. That when we're genuinely, I'm not just talking about mouthing words, I'm talking about genuine worship in our heart unto God. That we replace the grumbling and the complaining in our life with gratitude and gratefulness to God. Because gratitude and gratefulness attract grumbling and, and complaining drive away. You know that in just the natural world, correct? When you see someone coming your way and you know they're a grumbler and a complainer, what do you do? You're like, i got to get out of here. I don't want to talk to that person. Okay? Because you, just by nature as a human being, you're not attracted to people who are grumblers and complainers, correct? That's just, that's just human nature. Well, it's certainly it's God's nature as well. He's not attracted to the complainers, okay? It doesn't mean that God will not work with us through our complaining and all the ups and downs. I'm glad that He's still patient with us when we're in that mode, but God is attracted to praisers. He's attracted to people. He sends power or He's enthroned on the praises of people. That's a great example of that is in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi and they've been beaten to a pulp and they're at midnight and they're all bleeding and they're in this horrible set of circumstances and the Bible says that at midnight, instead of grumbling and complaining, Paul and Silas begin to worship and praise God and honor God and sing hymns of praise to God and the Bible says that God came down in their jail cell and there in that moment there was a great earthquake and the the cells were opened up not just for them but for everybody in the Philippian jail and liberty came because they were worshiping see so there's this praise that we need to generate when you praise God in your house when you live your life as a praiser personally when you create an atmosphere of praise in your home When you go about your work with an atmosphere of praise and gratitude to God. When you go about your service to God with an attitude of gratefulness and praise. That you serve the Lord with gladness, okay? That when that's a part of you, you're attracting the throne or the authority of God to work mightily and powerfully through your life. There's another verse I want to draw your attention to. I don't have much time to really address it. It's a great verse. Uh, Actually, three verses that I wish I had more time to talk about. I'm just going to highlight a central principle here. Isaiah 54, sing, O childless woman, you who have never given birth, break into loud and joyful song. Circle the word sing. So this is about singing. This is about worship. Sing, O childless woman, break into loud and joyful song. O Jerusalem, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. Enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home, and spare no expense, for soon you will be bursting at the seams. There's a lot of things we could talk about. There's an historical perspective of this particular passage that we could look at, but I want you to see a principle that I believe that is embedded here. The whole idea is that when you sing, get ready for things to enlarge in your life. That when you begin to be a real worshiper, you're, you're, you're providing opportunity for the expansion of boundaries in your life. When you're a complainer, you shrink your life. When you're a worshiper, you expand your life. Okay. Number three, keep right relationships. 
The Bible warns us about letting anger into our hearts and lives. The Bible says that if we don't deal with anger the right way, in Ephesians chapter 4, the scripture says that we actually, if we let the sun continue to go down in our anger, we give a place to the devil. And there are people that instead of inviting the presence of God into their homes, because they're constantly angry, who are they inviting into their homes? They're inviting the adversary in. And I will tell you that when you get something inside of you that is angry and bitter and resentful, what you're doing is you're, you're creating a barrier to the presence of God permeating your house. And so that's why the Bible says to keep and maintain right relationships. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That's an interesting passage there that we could actually fall short of God's grace, God's gifting in our life. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no bitter root, that's one of the ways that we fall short, is by allowing a bitter root to grow up and then it causes trouble to us and it defiles other people. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, therefore if you're offering your gift at the, at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. The fourth thing that we must do, read together with me, is to do what? Build God's house. If you want God, if you want your house to be God's house, you must do what? I think we can do a little better than that. Let's try it. You must build God's house. I'm going to tell you another story here that will lead us to this passage that we're going to read in just a moment from Haggai. Give you a little history. There was a time in, in, in Israel's history when the, the, the nation had been divided. There was a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians. And then the southern kingdom of Israel went on for a period of time. It was known as Judah or the southern kingdom. And over a period of time, the southern kingdom continued in idolatry. And prophets came and warned them about it. Finally said, you know, if you don't change your ways... There's a king from the north that's going to come in and take you captive and lead you away. And they didn't listen. And eventually, a Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar came in and captured the southern kingdom of Israel. And Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity, is what we call it, for 70 years. After 70 years, there was a Persian king that was raised up by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus gave a decree that the Jews could go back home again. They could rebuild the temple. And so 50,000 Jews, you can read about this in the book of Ezra, 50,000 Jews returned back to Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the temple. So they get back and under the leadership of some of the folks that had gone with them there, uh, you can again read about this in the book of Ezra is one of the places you can read of it, is that they began to rebuild this temple with the foundation. So they got the foundation laid and they celebrated the foundation of the temple. But after they had laid the foundation of the temple, they were distracted. They didn't do any more building. They'd been sent back to build the temple, but they'd only taken care of the foundation. And then everybody got busy building their own houses back in Jerusalem. And for 16 years, all they had in Jerusalem was a foundation. They completed the foundation, but they'd done nothing else because they were busy taking care of themselves. They were building their house instead of building God's house. Now, the prophet Haggai comes along at this season 
again at this period after there's been this 16 years a delay in doing what they should have been doing all along and Haggai comes along and is sent by God to stir them up and to get them moving again this that's why we read this passage now in Haggai chapter 1 beginning in verse number 2 this is what the Lord Almighty says these people say that is these people who had rebuilt the foundation but done nothing else these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panel houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. And then he describes our circumstances. You have planted much but have harvested little. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house. Notice that phrase, build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy, what, with your own houses. What was God upset about? What was God correcting here? God was correcting their priorities. He said, I told you to come back and focus on building my house. But all you're doing, you're spending all your time building your house. And I'll give you a principle here that if you'll learn this, this will help you. And some of you, this will be a revelation, turnaround moment in your life for the rest of your life. If you will give yourself to assisting in the building of God's house, God will build your house. If you'll give in the assistance of building God's house... God will build your house. I've watched it time and time again from both angles. People who gave themselves to the building of the house of God and how God took care of them in incredible ways. And those who thought, well, I've got to take care of me first. You always win when you put God first. You always win when you put God first. And so if you will build God's house, God will build your house. In the book of Malachi, this was a different time in Israel's history, but a similar set of circumstances. Although the temple was already in place by now, they'd finally rebuilt the temple. The people had grown lackadaisical again. They were not as engaged as they once had been and paying attention to their responsibilities at the temple. And part of what they'd done, they were offering just all kind of uh, uh, inferior sacrifices. People had stopped tithing, they had started marrying uh, into uh, other uh, nations that didn't honor God, and so all kind of things were happening there as a part of the situation, and God comes along again with a prophet by the name of Malachi, and part of what he does, he addresses the situation in Malachi chapter 3, notice what he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that is the house of God, that there may be food in my house, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, and pour out so much blessing, that there will not be room enough to store it. God says, look, if you'll get back in right relationship with me, if you'll put me first, if you'll bring your tithe into the storehouse, that's the first 10% of what I blessed you with, then I promise you that I'm entering into a covenant relationship with you. If you'll build my house, I will build your house. I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessing. There's not even room enough to receive. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom. It's God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Number five, the fifth thing. Read together with me. Spiritually own the boundaries associated with your house. 
give you a little explanation of this, and then we'll read Joshua here in just a moment. I'll reference you uh, to, uh, to Psalm chapter 91. We'll not read it, but I'll just mention it in, just a, uh, in a moment. If you own a house, an apart, uh, a condo, a townhouse, whatever it might be, with the purchase of a house comes some, come some kind of plat, some kind of boundaries. You know what your boundaries are, okay? You know what's your boundary line and what's your neighbor's, right? You know what you own and what you don't, right? And part of what you need to do is take responsibility for what's in your boundaries, okay? You can't control what's outside of your boundaries, right? But you can control what's in your boundaries, right? You can't control whether your neighbor cuts his grass, but you can control whether you cut your grass, right? Okay. So the things within your boundaries that you can do, that you can't control other things, but you can control what goes on in your boundaries. And God wants you to own your boundaries, okay? Whatever's inside your boundaries, He wants you in Him to utilize spiritual authority to lay claim to that for His kingdom. That is for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. I can't say what you and your house might do. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you've got some boundaries. And actually, they're, off, they're physical boundaries in your physical house. And what you need to do is lay claim to those boundaries. I will tell you what I personally do. This is not some kind of mystical thing, and you can choose to do this or not do this. I'm just telling you what I do, okay? And I'm not laying this out as some principle that you have to follow. I'm just telling you again what I do. But there are times that I will actually, I know where my, my boundary markers in, our, house, in our, our, our piece of property is, where my wife and I live. And there are times that I actually go out and I will walk all the boundaries to our property. I'll walk around them right on the boundary line. And I just am praying over everything within those boundaries. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And my prayer may be different things. I may be praying for my children or my grandchildren or my wife or some aspect of things. But I walk around those boundaries and I pray over them. Pray blessing. There are times that actually we'll just get out and walk around my house. Or times that my wife and I will actually just walk inside our house. We pray and lay claim to the boundaries inside of our home. There are times that I walk around this particular facility or the property that we have here as a church or other places where our campuses are that I've literally walked around them and prayed over them. Now, do you have to walk for that to be effective? No, but you still need to take spiritual ownership of those things that are in your boundaries. And pray God's blessings and pray that the works of hell will be driven from them. Okay? Now, does that mean that everything's going to always go well with you and everything's going to be perfect in your life and you'll never have any problems or never have any disappointments? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you're inviting God to help you in the midst of whatever you face in life, that God is in your property. Okay? He's in your world, that you invited Him in to the boundaries of your life. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, Joshua speaks of this. God speaks of this to Joshua, I should say, in Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Joshua is about to take over as the leader of Israel, and God speaks to him and says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them. As God says, I'm going to give you this land. There are going to be some new boundaries here. I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to give it to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Now, God had made a promise, but Joshua had to walk it out, okay? 
It's one thing to have the promise. It's the other dimension of laying claim to it and walking out. You might say, well, what should I pray over the boundaries of my life? I would highly recommend that you pray Psalm 91. Psalm 91, just pick up your Bible, walk through your house, reading Psalm 91. My wife and I have done this many times over the years. It's a valuable thing to do. Last point that we'll conclude with, and would you read together with me? Practice personal examination and the welcoming of God's presence in your house through family communion. This is going to be very quick here as we wrap up today. Once a month, we as a church, at least once a month, we come together and we celebrate communion. It's usually the first weekend of every month. We'll do it other times of the, of the year, special occasions as well. But we have a table here and we pass out the bread and the, the cup and the juice and we partake together around a family meal that centers on Jesus. That's really what it is, a family meal that centers on Jesus. And that little piece of bread represents the body that was Jesus' body that was broken for us. He gave his life on Calvary so we could have life. And the cup represents his blood shed for us so that we could have forgiveness. And so we eat of the bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of Jesus. It's not just a little ritual that we go through. It's just a quick, just a, just a regular reminder. It's all about Jesus, right? That's really what it is. It's a regular reminder. There's nothing mystical about communion, okay? It's just a regular reminder that as often as we do it, that we're doing so in remembrance of Him. Many actually communion tables that you'll see in, in some of the more traditional churches will say in, in remembrance. It'll say on the front of it, in remembrance of Him, okay? Now you say, well, we do that in church, and you're talking about something different, Pastor, maybe in my house? Are you saying that I can do communion in my house? Yes, you can, okay? And I found it over the years something to be very valuable. A lot of people don't realize that communion is something that you actually can do with your family. Actually, I've taken communion by myself before, okay? Just as a remembrance, because as often as you do this, you do so in remembrance of me. And so you don't have to be a reverend to lead communion. Isn't that good to know, okay? All you have to be is a believer in Jesus Christ, okay? And over the years, there have been numerous times that my wife and I, or my wife with our family, and even when our family has gotten larger and we've had kids and grandkids, there have been a few occasions, I think, Steve, a couple of times over the years that we've done this together. It's a little bit difficult now because uh, our youngest daughter is in Oklahoma with her kids and husband. But times that we kind of come together and just get some bread and some grape juice and just say, okay, family, let's just remember who it's all about, Okay. And there's something about just taking communion with your family that is a powerful thing that I would encourage some of you. It's one of the ways you sort of claim the boundaries of your house. So you can come together maybe every, every month or two at least and say, you know what, guys, we're going to take just a moment in our house, in our home. We're going to remember that this home is all about Jesus, okay? Is it a perfect home? No. By the way, there are no perfect homes. Isn't that good to know? And the devil will try to convince you that... You know, you can't do that because, you know, you don't have a perfect family, okay? And so he'll condemn you and make you feel miserable about yourself. So you can't do that here because you're not a very good Christian. That's all the more reason you need to do it, okay, right? This is a reminder of who and where your strength comes from, amen? So I would encourage you, so what do I do? How do I do communion? I don't know how to do it. I'm not a pastor. I don't know what to say. What do I say? Okay. Well, I'll tell you what you say. You just simply read Luke 22, 19 and 20. And 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, and say, okay, let's hold the bread, and let's remember that Jesus gave his life for us. I mean, you can, you can remember that, right? Okay? And let's eat together. 
you can do this, okay? And you can take the cup and say, let's remember that Jesus shed his blood for us so that we could be forgiven and have new life in him. Let's drink together. Turn to your neighbor and say, you can do that, okay? You can do that, okay? And it's, you don't have to have special communion. You can go to Safeway, okay? Safeway sells communion supplies. You just didn't realize it, okay? You can go to Giant. They sell communion supplies. It's called bread and grape juice. That's all it is, okay? And if you don't know where that aisle is, when you walk in, ask someone, Where's the, where are the communion supplies, okay? They'll direct you to the bread and to the grape juice. That's all you have to do. But it's a great practice for your life. Remember this as we're concluding today. I think all of us want our house to be God's house. Amen? I want my home to be God's home. Because I know that when God is present in my house, with His presence always comes blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We're so grateful for the opportunity we've had to share together. We ask you to take this message. And I pray that we would truly welcome you into our homes. We do pray that you would help us, Lord, to make our house your house, our home your home. Lord, we want you to know that you are wanted among us. We want you to know that you're welcomed among us. And we want you to be worshipped among us. Come and let your presence reside in our homes and your blessing rests upon us because of your presence. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for today's message. I trust that you've heard something from God's Word that'll make a difference in your life now and forever. Maybe as you were listening to today's message, God began to speak to you about a personal relationship with Himself. You know, the most important thing we can ever establish in our life is a relationship with God, and we do that by opening our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, today is your day. It's your opportunity. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now that you can pray that will forever change your life, that will allow your name to be written in the book of life for eternity. All you need to do is simply pray this prayer with me and mean it in your heart. If you'll mean this prayer, God will hear you. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So would you pray with me right now? Whisper these words to God or speak them out right where you are. Say, Jesus, just mention his name. Say, Jesus, I admit to you today that, that I am a sinner and I'm sorry, God, for everything I've done wrong. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are God's Son, the Savior, the Redeemer. I thank you that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again. I believe in you, Jesus. And then whisper this prayer. Say, Lord, today I invite you to come into my life to forgive me of my sins, to give me a brand new start in you. I give my life to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that prayer with me and I ask that now they would continue to grow in you and serve you faithfully from this day forward in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with me, friend, I want you to know that Jesus Christ heard you, that your name has been written in that wonderful book of life, and that now today you start a brand new life in Christ. And to do so, you need some help. You need to learn how to live your life for Jesus every day. We'd like to provide for you. In fact, we have available for you some resources that you can get from our website, church-redeemer.org, that will help you to get a good start in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So again, check out the website, church-redeemer.org. Find those resources that'll help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash a new you. 
We pray that this message was a blessing to you. 